0: Bibles this morning, if you would, to Esther chapter 5 in the Old Testament, Esther chapter 5. And if you're new here to City Church, if this is your first day with us, welcome. We've been in a a series for, uh, I guess, the last four weeks, this is the fifth week, uh, on a true story in the Old Testament in a book named for a woman, Esther. And we've called this series Wonder Woman. I think you'll understand why as we look at the book today. Now, I I do want to give everyone a quick review, especially those of you who are new. This book is about a narcissistic, misogynistic Persian king, and he has been tricked by his prime minister into issuing an edict to kill all of the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom. And oh, by the way, the king's queen is Jewish, but he doesn't know it. The queen has been urged by her uncle to go to the king and to intercede for the Jewish people. But you don't go to the king. See, it doesn't work that way. If the king wants you, he sends for you, you don't go to the king. And if you go to the king, you're taking your life in your own hands. He's likely to kill you for doing so. And that's not an exaggeration. In fact, you'll see this at the end of chapter 4. We saw it last week. I'm going to put the verse up on the screen. After Esther's uncle had challenged her to go to the king, this is what she said. She said, go gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So this is not an exaggeration when I say that the king may kill you for going to him. This is exactly what she feels. Her life is in great danger here. And I also want to say that this is, is, this is the closest that the book of Esther ever gets to mentioning the name of God. His name is never explicitly mentioned in Esther. There's not even any conspicuous miracles that you can find. This is as close as it gets when we talk, when they talk about praying. And yet, even though his name is never explicitly mentioned when you look back, after you read the whole book and you look back, it's clear that God was all over this book, all over the actions in this book. And we said that that's one of the ways that He works in our lives, that he's, he's usually he's, he's rarely conspicuous, but He's always involved in the storyline, in the details of the storyline of our lives, right? Okay, let's start reading now at chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, that's no accident, by the way, that it's the third day. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And you guys understand what's happening here, right? This is the moment that she's been praying about for three days. She's going to, before him. Her knees are probably shaking. shaking. She might be breathing her last breath. Her heart is in her throat. What's going to happen? King was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. And so Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. You know, if you think about it, Esther was for all intents and purposes as good as dead, wasn't she? But on the third day, she was given new life. Does that sound familiar to anybody? For three days, Esther lived under the specter of death. She was fasting and praying. And guess what? Guess what? The king just happens to be on his meds today. And he's kind to her. He shows her favor. And again, this is what we've been saying. That God is rarely conspicuous, but always involved in the storyline of your life. The king spares her. He even tells her to ask for anything she wants up to half of his kingdom. Now, it seems obvious to me, I don't know about you, but it seems very obvious to me that this is the perfect moment for her to ask him to spare the Jewish people. Look at verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said so that we may do what Esther asks. Now, wait a minute. Why didn't she ask him here? Why didn't she just say, you know, King, please spare the Jewish people. A decree has been issued. The prime minister tricked you into it. Please spare the Jewish people. Why doesn't she just do that in that moment? Well, it's a little hard, really, to say We know from the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who was born during the Persian Empire, that Persian monarchs were renowned for making these uh, extravagant oaths, like asking for anything up to half of my kingdom. But it was just part of their custom. And so it didn't mean that they were really willing to do that. It was just a way of saying to them, Anything that you want, anything that you ask for, if I can do it, I will give you. I mean, it was sort of that way. You know, we do that in a polite way, and we don't really mean, like, you know, if you, like if you want a car, I'll buy it for you. We don't really mean that. We, we're just saying we want to help in any way that we can. I think that's what the custom is here. And so likely what we're seeing here is the first exchange in a play of ancient Middle Eastern courtesies. So she invites him to this banquet that she has prepared in his honor. Look at verse 5. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your uh, petition? It will be given you. And what is your request, even up to half the kingdom? It will be granted. Now look, if, if it wasn't the right moment when the king first offered half the kingdom, this is surely the moment. Wouldn't you agree? The king's belly is full of food and wine. And here's the moment to say, I want Haman's head on a platter, spare the Jewish people. But watch, verse 7. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them, then I will answer the king's question. Now, I'm getting impatient. If I'm the king, I'm thinking to myself, let's get to the point. I have a kingdom to run here. I can't just keep going to banquets. It's difficult to know exactly why Esther delays here. But you know, one of the things that we've seen throughout this book is that for some reason, banquets are extremely important to this king. There've been Up until here, there have been three of them in the first few chapters. Perhaps that's why she delays. Maybe she delays because she sees something in the king. Maybe she plans on sleeping with the king tonight. Whatever the reasons, she delays again. But in her delay, she has quite cleverly extracted from the king a real promise here in verse 6. That whatever she wants, it will be granted he said. What's your petition? Whatever it is, it will be granted. And then he repeats, you know, that phrase that they do that, you know, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. But even before that, he just says, whatever your request, whatever your petition, it will be granted. So the king and Haman leave. Haman, Haman, he's in a great mood about all of this. He just had dinner with the king and the queen. He's very proud of of this, that he's been invited to this dinner, as we will see in just a few moments. He's probably walking home and singing to himself, I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt. But wouldn't you know it, as he's headed home, he runs into, guess who? Mordecai. Mordecai. And the same thing happens again. Mordecai won't show him the respect that he craves, and it infuriates Haman again. He gets home, he gets his wife, and he he gets his friends together, and in verse 11, he starts to boast. Look at this. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons. That was a sign, uh, that was sort of a sign of success in that day, that you had a number of sons. He boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. Haman added, "I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow." Blah 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 blah. I'm so wonderful. Don't you hate it when you have you ever been around people like this? They just, I mean, they're constantly tooting their own horn and telling you all the great things about them. But watch what he says next. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. After all that stuff that he's just talked about, that he's just boasted about, he says this, But all this gives me no satisfaction, as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. You see here, right, that in this case, the word Jew Is a racial epithet. He's not using that word descriptively. He's using it in a derogatory manner. That Jew, Mordecai. He tells his friends and his wife all of this. Watch what happens. His wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends. Notice that the only person named here is his wife, not the friends. His wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. That's about 75 feet. Have a pole set up reaching to a height of about 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. The suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. Whoa, baby, this is one cold-blooded wife. How would you like to to go home to that every night? Did Did you see the specificity of her uh, response, she's thought this thing thing through. She doesn't say just have a pole set up. She says have a pole 75 feet high set up. She doesn't say, hey, just sometime in the future, why don't you do this? She says, in the morning, go do this. And then afterwards, she says, go with the king to dinner and be happy. She's got this teed up. I'd hate to go home to that. Get in an argument with her before girls line out, she might pull out the 12 gauge, shoot you, and then go dancing with her friends and have a great time. This is a tough woman. And I don't know, I don't know if you've I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's very ironic that here in this misogynistic kingdom where the men demand that their women stay in place. In chapter 5, at least it seems like the women are running the show, does it not? I mean, it's the women that are directing all of the action here. And, of course, all the women here in the church say, well, of course, that's the way it is. That's the way it always works. You know, this week as I was, I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about, you know, what does God want to speak to us as a church about today? And, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've read this book many times uh, Read it through many times. I've studied this book many times. I've even preached it a number of different times. A couple different times. Um, but this past week, I noticed something that I've never seen before in all of the previous times that I've read, studied, or preached this book. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I saw it this time. There's this fascinating parallel at the end of this chapter between Haman's actions here in chapter 5, and Xerxes' actions back in chapter 1. Here's what I mean. So, for example, back in chapter 1, you'll remember that Xerxes' wife disrespected him. In chapter 5, Mordecai disrespects Haman. Back in chapter 1, you'll remember that it wasn't enough for Xerxes just to banish Vashti. He issued a decree throughout the kingdom that all Persian women must respect their husbands. In the same way, Haman is mad at Mordecai, but he won't just deal with Mordecai. He's going to butcher the whole race of the Jews and kill Mordecai too. There's this comparison between how these two men, the number one and the number two man in the empire, work. And I think God intentionally draws this comparison in order to give us some insight into exactly what it is behind this crisis in the Persian kingdom. Here's a kingdom that as I said it's in crisis, one in which the whole city is in crisis. Do you remember what uh, at the end of chapter 3 what the author said about the city of Susa, the, the capital city? Yeah, he said he said that they were be, they were bewildered. The whole city was bewildered. In other words, there's there's chaos, there's confusion, there's frustration, there's there's fear. What's going on? And I think this is I think the reason that this passage is relevant to us today is that it seems to me like the word that you could use to describe the world we live in today is the same word that is used to describe the city of Susa. Bewildered. I think we as a culture are bewildered. Just a few weeks ago, the uh, state of Hawaii you probably read or heard about this, mistakenly issued an emergency cell phone alert warning all of the residents and all the visitors in Hawaii that they had detected an incoming missile threat and that people should seek cover immediately. And they ended, they ended with this ominous phrase this is not a drill. How would you like to receive that? What made it feel so real in part is that the state had already been on high alert due to the escalating tension between the United States and North Korea, and the threat of nuclear war. And so for 38 excruciating minutes, people prepared for imminent death, texting friends and family all over the world, telling them that they love them. How would you like to have been there for that? I bet you people there would have said it was bewildering to them. You know, for 300 years... We have been told as a culture that scientific advancement is making us more enlightened people. And yet, mass shootings still occur so frequently, we aren't even surprised about it anymore. And if it's not a mass shooting, it's a terror attack. Uh, Excuse me, terrorist attack. Cops and black kids continue to kill one another. Powerful men that we've held in high esteem still harass and even rape women over whom they wield power. Does that sound enlightened to you? Our politicians not only don't agree with each other, but they can't even seem to tolerate one another. A doctor who took an oath of first do no harm, sexually molested over 250 young Olympic hopefuls under his care. The state of Florida is so troubled by the effect that pornography is having on a whole generation that they're considering a bill that would classify pornography as a public health risk. Sound enlightened? We are a nation that revels in diversity, and yet distrust is at an all-time high. Families are fragmented, and mainline churches and civic organizations are in eclipse. And it feels sometimes that the center isn't holding, and that we're a very fractured republic. I think bewildered would be a good word to describe the culture of America today. If we're so enlightened, why is all of this happening? What's going on around us? Why the chaos? And I think that's important to look at because one of the things that's clear in the Bible is that God didn't create the world this way. He created the world in such a way that people would live. Well, the the Hebrew word that uh, was used to describe it, it was the word shalom. People would live in shalom, meaning an inward and outward sense of wholeness and peace and contentment. But I think you'd agree with me that the world that we live in today is far from that kind of world. And the question is, what's behind our world's lack of shalom? And the bigger question really is, what can God's people do to move the world towards shalom? Because listen, with every action that we take, with every word that we utter, we're moving the world either toward chaos or toward order, one of the two. In your little corner of the world, in my little corner of the world, everything I do, everything I say is moving people either toward chaos or toward shalom. What, what can we do as God's people to make sure that we're moving the world toward our corner of the world, toward shalom? Well, first, I think we have to understand, we have to diagnose, understand what the problem is in our culture. What... What is the, what's the problem here in, in Susa? What's causing the dysfunction and the chaos there, and what's causing it in America? And look, you could mention a number of things, I'll bet. You could talk about economic issues, you could talk about governmental issues, you could talk about education, you could talk about all these things, but in a word, what this passage is te- teaching us is that all the chaos and all of the dysfunction and all of the bewilderment that we feel as a culture is due to one word, pride. Pride. Xerxes and Haman are the most vivid and sustained case studies in the Bible of everything that the Bible says about pray, about pride and what happens to people and nations and companies and families and schools and churches when they let pride rage unchecked. So, I want to to talk about the destructiveness of pride, but before I get there, I want to make sure that all of us understand what pride is, because I'm not sure that we all are on the same page here. Let me give you a biblical and theological definition of pride. Here it is. What is pride? Pride is a preoccupation with earning a sense of worth by possessing more of something than someone else. That's what pride is. I'm going to say it again. It's a preoccupation with earning a sense of worth by possessing more of something than someone else. Now, I wanna, let's just break that definition down quickly, okay? First, notice, pride is preoccupied with self. Pride's self-obsession, really. You're consumed all the time, all of your thoughts. How am I feeling? How do I look? How are people treating me? How are they responding to me? I wonder what they think of me. What's in this for me? That's what pride does. And you see that in both Xerxes and Haman. What spurs each of these guys toward the destructive actions that they take in this passage? What what spurs each of them? They're both acutely aware of what hasn't been given to them by Vashti in Xerxes' case or Mordecai in Haman's case. Namely, what is it? What hasn't been given to them? They're both acutely aware of this. Respect. Yeah, respect. I haven't been given respect. So what Xerxes thinks to himself. He banishes Vashti. Mordecai, I haven't been given, or excuse me, Haman, I haven't been, haven't been given respect. And so he wants to kill Mordecai and, and all of the Jewish people. Okay? Pride is preoccupied. It is obsessed with self. Second, pride attempts to earn a sense of worth externally. Uh, it attempts to earn a sense of worth externally. Every single one of us in the room today, every, in fact, everybody that you know, Believes down deep in our heart of hearts that there's a way that we can earn our sense of worth. And usually, that way to earn your sense of worth is something that you've been taught, either directly or indirectly, by the things that your family values, the things that you were taught by your family, maybe by your teachers, your mentors, maybe by the culture as a whole. We all have this. For for Xerxes and Haman, it's clearly power. That's their thing. Power will make them worthy. Now, for someone else, maybe it's degrees, educational degrees. For someone else, maybe it's beauty. For someone else, maybe it's some character trait, you know? How hard you work, let's say. Your work ethic. The pride argues that your worth has to be earned in some way. Uh, you know, your, your, the basic worth of you, as, your value as a person has to be earned, okay? third. Pride compares. It's part of that definition. It compares. You have to have more of something than someone else. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And that's true, isn't it? I think, you see, I think this is why you see that Xerxes and Haman have these two seemingly opposing traits. You wouldn't think that they could coexist. And I think it's not just them. I think you'll see it in yourself. I think if you knew me well enough, you'd see it in me. There are times in this book that it seems like these guys feel superior to everyone around them. But then there are these other times, doesn't it? It seems like that they're just massively... Insecure. Why why is that? How can can those two very opposing traits exist in one person? Well, here's how this works. If you grew up like both of these men did, believing that power makes you worthy, well, when you're around people who also believe that and who are less powerful than you are, you feel great about yourself. You're strutting around like Haman, right? Right? But if you run into, say, a Vashti or a Mordecai who aren't impressed by power, they're not intimidated by power, they could really care less about your power, and as a result are more powerful than you, <laughs> you feel terrible about yourself. That's how that happens. Let's make it a little more personal for most of us. Let's say that you measure your worth I don't know, let's, let's, let's say by education degrees, you know. When you're around people who aren't as educated as you, you feel great about yourself. But what happens when you're around people who are smarter and more educated than you are? What do you feel? You feel terrible about yourself because pride compares. And because pride compares, you will find yourself feeling superior to some people and massively inferior To other people. You may even feel like your days are up and down in that sense. You may even feel, I don't know, maybe you even, maybe I'm giving something away here I shouldn't give away, but maybe you even feel unstable at times. Like, how could I feel this? Like, maybe you would think to yourself, it's not just my days that are up and down. It's like sometimes I go up and down by hour in terms of what I feel in comparison to other people. Maybe it's by the half hour. You probably feel that sometimes. It's pride that causes that because pride compares. And then, of course, the last logical conclusion of what we have said so far is that pride is needy. Prideful people are extremely needy people. In both Xerxes and Haman's case, look at how needy these two guys are. Here are the two most powerful men in the world. And they need the respect of two relatively powerless people in order to feel good about themselves, Vashti and Mordecai. Haman says as much in verse 13 when he says, he says he can't get any satisfaction out of anything in his life because Mordecai won't show him respect. Pride is so needy because pride uses people, you see. Prideful people can't love people because they're always using people to get validation of their worth as a person. In fact, you know, we can even do very religious-looking things out of pride that most people will think is selfless, but when you get down to it, it was really, you did it so that you would be seen as a good person or as selfless, which then validates you as a person. And in fact, I even tell you this. I would argue that this is much of what religion is. It's pride masquerading as love. This is pride. This is what it is. This is what's behind the dysfunction in Persia, what's behind the dysfunction in America. It's what's behind the dysfunction in your company, in your department, in your family. It's always pride. And this is where I want to move into exactly what is the destructiveness of pride. And I think it's not hard to see it in this passage. And just let me show you what I mean. One of the things that pride does, and you'll see it here, is that pride makes you do some really foolish things, doesn't it? Xerxes, in a fit of fury, banishes his wife, And he probably alienates most of the women in Persia when he decrees that they must respect their husbands. Makes him look like a fool. He doesn't look like a powerful, self assured king. He looks like a fool. Haman, exceedingly rich and the second most powerful man in the world, becomes so obsessed with one Jewish man that he tells his friends and his family that everything else he has means nothing to him. If he can't get one obscure Jewish guy to respect him, he looks like a fool. And we're going to see in the weeks ahead where that gets him. Pride makes you look foolish. It makes you do foolish things. Has pride ever caused you to do something foolish? Like, for instance, have you ever been, have you ever been wrong about something but refused to say that you were wrong? Do you know that prideful people uh, aren't good learners? Like, if you have prideful people that work for you, They're not going to do a great job usually. Do you know why? Because they're not teachable, and they can't ever admit that they're wrong. Pride makes you look really, really foolish, and it makes you do really, really foolish things. Notice in this passage, too, that pride makes you racist, classist, and misogynistic. Haman is a racist. How dare Mordecai not bow down to him? And it's not just Mordecai the person. He has to identify him in the most derogatory way that he can think of to identify him, the Jew. He's not just describing him, he's, his, his nationality or his ethnicity. No, he's, he's putting him down. That Jew, of all people, that Jew ought to be standing when he sees me. He ought to bow down when I come around. He needs to show me respect because he's a Jew. And I'm not. Xerxes is classist. This guy doesn't even get outside of the palace very much. He seems completely oblivious to the bewilderment of the city of Susa, the common people. He doesn't even know he's issued a decree to kill the Jewish people. He's classist. He doesn't want to spend time around the commoners. By the way, I just want to make sure that you understand that classism works both ways. Just ask a person, just ask a wealthy person in America how they feel that they are perceived in America. Works both ways. Of course, Xerxes is a misogynist too. Hey, I need a wife. Let's bring in all of the young virgins, uh, the beautiful young virgins, and let me, let me, let me bed each one of them and, and see which one gets the honor of being my wife misogynistic. See, you can't treat people like these men treat people without feeling superior to them in the ways that you've been taught to judge worth. In reality, they're not superior to anybody here. But in their minds, because the way that they judge a person's worth, they're superior to many people here in this book. And that's why they treat them so poorly. Makes you racist, classist, misogynistic. Here's something else you see in this book. Pride makes you thin-skinned and hateful. It makes you thin-skinned and hateful, like you can't take criticism. You would think, right, that the egos of the two most powerful men in the world could brush off one woman's disrespect and one minority's disrespect without throwing a temper tantrum, without going into a rage and a fury. You'd you'd think that. (laughs) But clearly, neither one of these guys can See, and the reason is, is remember I said pride is needy. And when people don't do what these guys need them to do to validate them, it drives them insane and their resentment grows into full-blown hatred. And I got to tell you, this, by the way, is why social media uh, is a petri dish of hatred and bitterness. There's not... Listen, there's not a day that goes by that were you to go to say, I don't know, Twitter, let's say, and pull up what's trending on Twitter. You won't, there's not a day that goes by that you won't see someone who is outraged by something someone else said or did. They're outraged. And sometimes it's like the same person is outraged all the time. And I don't understand how these people make it in the world. How can you be outraged all the time? It's possible, isn't it? To hear someone else's idea and just disagree with it? Can't you do that? Just see it like as an idea that's contrary to yours? You can even state your own opinion without having to be hateful or expressing outrage over it. It's just a different idea than mine. But you see, pride won't allow that. Pride sees disagreement as an assault on your worth. And so we have to come up with these terms like microaggressions and triggers, and we have to give trigger warnings, and we have to provide safe spaces for people, because these aren't just competing ideas in the marketplace of ideas. No, any idea that disagrees with me is an assault on my worth as an individual, and so I respond by being angry and hateful. Here's a trigger warning for you today. If you are prideful, you will be uncomfortable here the rest of the morning. Here's a trigger warning. And here's the other thing. We don't have a safe space here for you. It makes you angry and hateful. Everything, see, you're so needy that everything feels like it's an attack on you. It's like you need air. It's like you need water. I have to have this. I have to have you validate me. And if you don't, then I hate you. Now, we could go on and on. We could... We could talk more about the destructive effects of pride. I don't have time to do that. We could talk about how destructive pride is in the sense that it, it makes you feel entitled. Is that relevant to America? We could talk about how pride makes you envious. We could talk about how pride makes you lonely. Uh, you know, a study was done a number of years ago. The average American male has zero people that he can call a friend. Pride makes you feel lonely. We can talk about how pride makes you restless and discontent. We can talk about how pride makes you anxious, fearful, opinionated, indecisive. How pride makes you depressed. But what the Bible teaches is that pride is really the driver behind every evil in the world. And when people let pride go unchecked in their lives, it destroys them, and it destroys their relationships with other people. And when leaders let their pride go unchecked, it destroys nations, companies, families, churches, schools, departments, and every other collection of people that you can think of. This is why the people of Susa are bewildered and in chaos. And it's the root of the bewilderment in our culture. It is pride, your pride, and my pride, and everyone else's pride, writ large on the landscape of America. <laughs> Do you know what I think is the most dangerous thing about pride of all? It's that no one thinks they're prideful. You know, pride is like pride's a lot like garlic. You don't think you smell like garlic, but everyone else around you is gagging because of it, right? That's the problem with our culture, pride. Where's the hope then? Where's the hope? If nobody thinks they're prideful, and yet that's the very problem in our culture, where is the hope? I want you to hear me on this. The only thing that can release you from the preoccupation with earning a sense of worth by possessing more of something than someone else, the only thing, is to know that you have been given all the worth in the universe through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it was there, you see, on the cross, that the only one who really matters, the one who holds the whole world together, who owns all the gold and silver in the world, who is the subjective and objective center of the universe, who the angels of heaven constantly declare his worth, on the cross, God put a stake in the ground and He died on it in the person of Jesus so that you could know once and for all how much you matter to Him, how much you are worth as a human being. So listen to me, hear me on this. You cannot earn a sense of worth Not in your job, not in your education, not in your beauty, not in anything. You cannot earn a sense of worth. Worth must be granted to you by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul means in the book of Ephesians when he says that we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Man, when you got every spiritual blessing, you can't get more. He says you've been given it. You didn't earn it. You can't get more worth than you've been given. You don't need more worth than that. There's this passage in the Gospel of John. Jesus, it's it's a high, it doesn't matter. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and then he prays for all of the people that are going to follow his disciples who are going to believe in him, like you and me, because of his disciples' message. And as he's praying, he says, as part of his prayer to his heavenly father, he says this, he says, I have given them the glory... That you gave me. Do you understand what that means? The word glory, it's a word that means honor, worth, value. Jesus says, I have given to them, they didn't earn it, I have given to them the very honor and worth that you gave me, Father. He gave it to us. We're worth as much as the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? How would that change your life if you really got a hold of that, if you really understood that? Only when we really get a hold of that and begin to practice it in our own lives can we finally be released from this preoccupation with trying to earn a sense of worth, from the preoccupation with self, from the comparison with other people that always ultimately distances us from other people, and the neediness that uses people instead of loves them. Only when we get that can we be free to love people and serve people instead of being preoccupied with ourselves. Folks, this is why it is up to the church, the people of the kingdom of God, to move the world toward shalom. Google isn't going to do it. Apple isn't going to do it. No company that you can think of is going to do it. No college is going to do it. No high school is going to do it. No grade school is going to do it. Nothing, no politics, no bills are going to move the people of the world toward shalom. Only a person who has acknowledged his pride, acknowledged that worthiness can't be earned, only granted, and then bowed his or her knee at the cross of Christ can experience freedom of any measure from pride. Jesus, in the greatest act of humility the world has ever known, gave himself on a cross as the only acceptable sacrifice for all the sins and all of the evils of the world so that you can know once and for all that you matter, that you have all the glory the world can ever give you because Jesus has given it to you through his death, his very own glory. You see, that's the hope of the world. And it's only the people in the church of God who believe this truth that can really go out and serve people and love people in a way that moves our corner of the world toward shalom. It's through the cross of Christ that you are granted worth. You'll never earn it at work. You'll never earn it anyplace. It was only given to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus, this uh, truth, I guess what I'm praying today is that you would make this truth real in our hearts and minds. It is so opposite of everything that we have ever been taught or told, that we can't earn it, that it's only something that can come through the cross, that only you can give it. And Lord Jesus, um, as you impress this upon our heart through the power of your Spirit in the way that only you can, would you, uh, would you, Lord, give us just enable us to to receive it, to accept it, not in a way that beats us up, but in a way that moves us from this pride that destroys us to a humility that allows us to love and to serve other people. Would you give us that, Lord? And for those that have never believed upon you, would you today bring them to the place that they understand that their only hope is through the cross of Jesus Christ? And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.